This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lin Shanjiang. Today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Nicole Elizabeth Barnes with us here on air. Nicole, would you like to say hi to the listeners? Yes, hello, everyone. Nicole Elizabeth Barnes is Assistant Professor of History and Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. Today, we'll focus on her monograph, Intimate Communities, Wartime Healthcare, and the Birth of Modern China, 1937 to 1945, published by the University of California Press in 2018. This book has won two major awards, William H. Welch Award by American Association for the History of Medicine in 2020, and John Kelly Memorial Prize by American Historical Association in 2019. I first met Nicole in the annual conference of the Association of Asian Studies in 2021, in which she was the presenter in a roundtable about war. I was fascinated by how she connected the discussion of the war with gender issues in the Chinese context. After the conference, I invited her to be the discussant of the panel I organized entitled Theorizing War Through History, Literature, Visual, and Popular Culture at the annual conference of AAS in 2022, which we just completed in Hawaii in March. It was such a pleasure to meet Nicole in person. Now, let's come back to the book, Intimate Communities, Wartime Healthcare, and the Birth of Modern China, 1937 to 1945. When China's war of resistance against Japan began in July 1937, it sparked an intimate health crisis throughout China. In the end, China not only survived the war, but emerged from the trauma with a more cohesive population. Intimate Communities argues that Women who worked as military and civilian nurses, doctors, and midwives during this turbulent period built the national community, one relationship at a time. In a country with a majority illiterate agricultural population that could not relate to urban elites' conceptualization of nationalism, these women used their work of healing to create emotional bonds with soldiers and civilians from across the country. These bonds transcended the divides of social class, region, gender, and language. In fact, while reading this book, it reminds me of my childhood memory spent in the hospital where my mother worked as a nurse and all kinds of dialogues that I have had with my mother about her work. She has worked as a medical professional for more than 30 years and retired a few years ago. Now she's working as a professional teaching nursing in a vocational school. Actually, this book makes me feel so intimate in this way. Let's get started with the interview. What motivated you to do this research? Why is gender an important lens for you to consider in relation to the war? Thank you so much, Lin Shan, for that warm introduction and for reflecting that the book made you feel intimate and reflect on your own childhood. That's really lovely for me to know. So before doing the PhD, I did a dual master's at University of Colorado at Boulder. And in writing my master's thesis in history, I was focusing on the women's liberation movement, the the whole question of women's liberation, and I did not have money as a master's student or time to go overseas. So I was getting all the things I could through interlibrary loan. And I was finding that All of the popular press materials available for women, most of them were coming out of Shanghai, and those presses stopped operating in 1937 when the Japanese army invaded Shanghai. 
And at the same time, all of the secondary literature I was consulting ended in 1937. So what I was noticing in the historiography was this implicit narrative that the liberation of women and that the women's movement ended also in 1937, which did not make sense to me. Because if you look at secondary literature on women's role in World War II and how World War II affected women around the world, you know, things that we know about Britain and women in the United States and all over Europe. War, that war in particular was profoundly, it uh, forced many fundamental changes for women. So I, I just had the sense that we had to look at that period, we had to look beyond the 1937 veil in the historiography of women in China to understand what was happening. And I had the supposition that it was going to be pretty dramatic, but I had no actual information to fill that in. Now, I also was lucky enough in the first summer after my first year of the PhD program to receive funding from the Taiwanese government. It was the, the Huayu Language Fellowship. So I spent that summer in uh, Yilan, a couple hours south of Taipei, studying language at the Fuguang Dashue. So big shout out to my Chinese teacher at the time, Jan Yating, Tina Jan of the Fuguang University there. She was a fantastic teacher. And then because I was in Yilan where I could get on the train and go up to Taipei, I went up to visit the gender scholars at Zhongyuan uh, Yan Academia Seneca, because one of them had actually was a graduate of my alma mater, UC Irvine. I visited them and, and I told them about this dilemma. I was, you know, I'm pretty sure that we should look to the war period for more information about Chinese women's experience. And they said, oh, yes, we have noticed the same thing. And we've recently established a whole oral history group and we're gathering oral histories of women who are now living in Taiwan, but who were on the mainland during the war. And I thought that is fantastic because for a good research project, you need to know that you're not just a naive PhD student <laughs> barking up the wrong tree. So that was a nice affirmation of my intuition, but also it gave me other scholars to work with and kind of um, in other interlocutors. And indeed, while I was doing the dissertation, they published the first of, of several volumes of oral histories. And I referenced that in my work because they were amazing oral history interviews with women. A minority of them had had medical experiences or had done medical work during the war, but it was still... The whole volume is really wonderful contextual uh, information about the lives of women during the war. That's so fabulous to hear. And all those connections you build up and also this whole idea of oral history, which also inspires me as a literary scholar. So I really love that part as well. Now let's really come into your book and you talk a lot about the tension between women and hygienic modernity as well as women and the nation state. And how do you see the dynamic and tension between these two? And what is the importance of class or social hierarchy in your analysis of hygiene, the nation state, and the war? Yeah, those are really excellent questions. Thank you. First, I'd like to speak to the tensions and the relationship between women and hygienic modernity. Because, of course, this work was really in large part inspired by Ruth Rogaski's work on hygienic modernity. And she did start to peel the layer back on women and particularly in her analysis of advertisements directed specifically toward women. But those were urban middle class women. And I was, of course, interested in this work on how hygienic modernity played out in rural areas and among lower class women. What I find to be true is that a very distinct facet of hygienic modernity in China is that it is a goal that can never be achieved. It's like that elusive pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And we're living through it right now with the pandemic that, you know, the past U.S. president called the Kung flu and the Wuhan virus and that, you know, its emergence just rekindled a centuries-old medicalized racism against Asians and Asian Americans, and we're seeing a spike in anti-Asian violence around the world, right? This notion that the Chinese are always already dirty, backward, unhygienic is probably a lifelong obsession of mine. Every one of my books, as I foresee in the near future, will be engaging with that idea. Honestly, it sounds sad, but I don't think we're going to actually be able to put that assumption to rest until we end racism entirely. It's just such a prevalent assumption that Chinese are 
physically different in some way that is inherent to them. So that put a tremendous amount of pressure on women because, of course, at the time in the you know very late 19th and early 20th centuries, when that desire, that goal was becoming a prevalent aim to overcome China's geopolitical weakness, it was so interpreted to be a goal of strengthening the body and then through Lamarckian <laughs> biologism, the idea that women were essential to that. Women had to stop binding their feet. They had to participate in physical education and gymnastics. They had to be open to being inculcated into the very male-dominant militarism of the time in an era that was basically characterized by constant warfare. Uh, And they had to be willing to produce healthy, chubby babies and, you know, submit them to well baby contests and all of these things that it really put an extraordinary burden on women that I try in the book to analyze by gendering the term sick woman of Asia. You know, I say it's Dongya being fu fu, (laughs) a double the fu, the one being masculine and the other, the feminine. Um, And it put in English, the sick woman of East Asia. I don't yet know how that is going to be received in the scholarship, but I really do hope it, it gets taken up because you can see very clearly that there were two different tracks for women and men in response to the pressure to modernize China from the ground of physical body up. You know, that also relates to women in the nation state, because of course, we constantly talk about how the People's Republic of China told women stand down class warfare is first. But in fact, the Republic of China, the nationalist state told women stand down the nation building is first, right? It was a very similar dynamic, very, very similar. And with the added twist that under the nationalists, Song Meiling herself was representative of that idea. <laughs> you know, so she was almost giving it even more legitimacy because she, as a woman, should have been more invested in women's liberation. But instead, she was making the nation state Trump all. And I did find some interesting documents on her that suggested that she was just under so much pressure to represent the nation at a time time of heightened sexism. Even though she was the first lady of China, she didn't actually have that much leverage to operate outside of that subservient secondary role to Jiang Jiexi, to Chiang Kai-shek, even though, you know, she actually did more of the political operations, especially with the Americans, once they came into the war as allies because of her fluent English and her having been schooled in the United States, her kind of Americanization, explicit Americanization, not just Westernization, but you know, fluent in English, the Southern Bell, educated for so many years in the United States and, and being of the, the sort of very American Protestant version of her, her Christianity. She was so heavily Americanized and she did more of the conversations with all these high-level statesmen. You know, Chiang Kai-shek would go to bed early and she would stay up late vetting these missionaries and, and representatives of the American state. But in the media, she still was kind of, she had to toe the line of how the wife (laughs) would behave, right? You know, in relation to uh, women's role as uh, working towards this elusive goal of hygienic modernity and nation building, I I called on the Sarah Elizabeth Stevens's work on women's reproductive labor being of a nature that evacuated themselves from their own reproductive experience. You know, they sort of In the narrative of hygienic modernity, the woman represents the womb. And what is really important is the issue of her womb, especially if it's a a boy. And it's not even her own body. Like she, the woman's body is, of course, central to this goal of creating the strong race. But her own gestational experience is sublimated. It's in counter tension to the fact that throughout this period, Obgyne work as a field and midwifery as a field remained in women's hands, but it was still discursively always for the male goals of let's have a strong group of men who can be the future statesmen and soldiers and keep our nation strong. And then also we see that play out in the work that I also cite in the book of Colette Plum on the Warfans. Of course, Song Meiling coined that term. And throughout the um, war, uh, the, the 
the war orphanages that were established for these young children, they were heavily militarized. And the boys in those groups were trained to enter into the military. And there was, Colette Plum shows this through her dissertation and her later article. There was a, an explicit kind of militarization of their education and a nationalization. And they were really trained to think of the nation as their parents and, and talked about and treated as the nation's children, right? So, of course, the emotional bonds that they created with the women who led the orphanages worked both with that and against that. And for that, I would flag the upcoming work of my colleague at Randolph-Macon College, Jung Bo Wen. She's uh, completing a book manuscript that does more analysis of women who led the war orphanages. And that, I think, will be another layer to this. I really try in my work to be a feminist scholar in the sense of leaving room for and supporting the work of other scholars. So that's why I'd like to give a shout out to Zhang Dewen. Yeah, it's so great to end here because we just had this panel that I mentioned in the introduction and we're in the same panel with Dewen Laoshi as well. So it was so fantastic. And I definitely agree that we should really support each other as female scholars. Otherwise, It's like the whole nation building project back then and also the war that even though women participated in the war in so many aspects, our voices are very much buried. So in that sense, I think it's so important to have your work here. And let's come to kind of the class and social hierarchy we're just talking about. And you mentioned how your work actually engage with the rural and lower class women. And sometimes this is about the relationship between the medical professionals and the patients. And sometimes it's also within the whole medical professional realm. So we have doctors, nurses, midwives, and other kind of medical professionals. So I'm wondering how the intersection of gender and class play out in these different occupations in the medical realm. And also, how about the relationship between the medical professionals and common people, on the other hand? Yeah, that's a good question. So many of the women who took on medical roles in the war did come from middle class backgrounds, and so they would have easily been read as middle class and especially urbanite women from the perspective of rural refugee or a rural origin soldier. And of course, at least by 1940, if not earlier, most of the soldiers were rural origin. They were young farm boys who'd been pressed into working for the military by those conscription gangs. So that was the perspective I had. I was trying to think through their eyes, like how would a young farm boy have experienced these women in roles that they had never seen women play. And I argued, especially in chapter four, that even the women from lower class backgrounds, once they had training in nursing, once they were working for an entity that had some kind of relationship with the government, be they military nurses or civilian nurses, they had access to a certain kind of authority. Right. And they, that authority gave them control over people's bodies. And so they effectively, in these individual interactions that I read through photographs and nurses' records, I could see that there was a kind of trumping of the gender subservience. Normally, they would have been subservient to the men, but they were able to use their access to education, to medical knowledge, to the uniform, to their title, <laughs> to gain authority over these bodies in a way that was, I'm sure, unsettling at first, but then what they were offering was life-saving care. And sometimes they were performing the emotional labor to make it rather tender care. And so that, again, was kind of, it was just a sort of overall unsettling experience, right? First, it's unsettling for a young farmering boy to see a woman in this position. And then it's unsettling to hear her use medical terms and you know, bring out these medical implements and medicaments that he's never seen before. And then she's touching his body, which is like so shocking, right? To have that physical contact. But the nurses were trained, military and civilian nurses were trained to do those movements, to do their work with authority and with confidence and with kind of ease, right? To make it seem easy and and fluid. And then of course, 
even for the ones who came in, especially in the later years of the war, a lot of the nurses came in with very basic training, but then they had on-the-job training. Right? That was also the case of this woman, Yao Aihua, whose oral history plays a dominant role in the book. She went in in the very early stages of the war, but that was a time when the number of wounded was super high because the Imperial Japanese Army was just going by moving like wildfire through the cities and the countryside in between. So they were getting inundated. Every single military field hospital was just inundated with the wounded. And so it was a kind of trial by fire training on the job. And it doesn't take very long for a medical worker to gain a sense of confidence in that kind of setting, because if you don't gain that, you burn out, you cannot even do complete your job, right? So even though she and her fellow nurses in that setting were basically like little middle school kids with very little training, they gained this kind of authority very quickly, right? And I was trying to figure out how the combination of authority over bodies and the intimacy of medical care and the trust that true medical care provides was creating this kind of strange concatenation of emotional responses on the parts of people on all sides. And it was really thanks to a lot of records of nurses that wrote into nurses' journals or had their oral histories recorded that I could see that it was a very exceptional kind of relationship that was developing out of these circumstances, given that everyone recognized that it was dire. (laughs) So they had to kind of set aside their ordinary expectations of how each member in that party would behave and just be willing to enter into a new space, right? Um, But it also very much relates to the fact that biomedical nursing and midwifery sciences, by which I mean for midwifery, aseptic midwifery that recognized germ theory in its actual practice and aimed for asepsis in childbirth, Those were fields that granted young women, particularly young women, a kind of authority they had not had access to before. And particularly, you know, if you look at the world of traditional Chinese medicine, it's not ever really discussed overtly in the scholarship, but that is very much a male-dominated world. There are, of course, female physicians of Chinese medicine, but they tend to be the aberrance, the abnormality, right? It's when the, the medical lineage agrees to training the daughter because there is no son. So to have these two modern fields of aseptic midwifery and nursing, both the military and civilian varieties, to throw open the gates wide open to young women and say, we will train you, we will give you a new title, <laughs> you know, Zhu Chan Shi and Hu Shi, that gives the leaders there, Zhou Meiyu and Nie Yuchan and Mary and Yang Yang, Chong Rei, the insight that they had about official titles was so powerful. And I think I actually never stated it explicitly in the book, but similar to Yang Chong Rei, who said we need to call these midwives Zhu Chan Shi, Shi of scholar, <laughs> to give them this authority in that space. Uh, Zhou Meiyu said to the military, yes, I will train your nurses, but you have to give them military rank. Because if you want soldiers to respect them in the clinic, in the military field hospital or whatever place in which they encounter them, they have to have a military title. And so she herself gained the title of major general within the National Revolutionary Army, even though she never did any fighting, right? And there's this famous photographs of her, one of which I include in the book, where she's in her full military gear, right? And she looks very sharp. And she's just looking at the camera with this attitude of total authority and competence. But women, when you look at the records of these leaders, all of the women I just mentioned, Nye Yuchan or Vera Nye, who was the dean of the Peking Union Medical College School of Nursing, Zhou Meiyu, who led the major general, Zhou Meiyu, who led the military and civilian nurses training programs, and Yang Chongrei, Marian Yang, who, who led the all of the training programs for midwifery and during the war worked on behalf of the National Health Administration for the Bureau of Women and Children's Health. All of them faced a very, very harsh glass ceiling in their own roles. And they were constantly, constantly fighting for 
the idea that women in these positions should be treated with authority and respect. And it was a constant battle. So that means that we have to infer that women out in the clinics were facing a similar battle for uh, respect. But conversely, if they were interacting not with highly educated men who also had title and authority as the leaders, the leading women did, but they're interacting with young farming boys, they were actually able to gain that authority quicker, right? Because sometimes they were using their age to trump the gender subservience, right? Or if they had a little bob haircut and they had kind of urbane ways, you know, they were using the sort of authority that a city had to help them seem like they should command that respect. So I used a variety of sources, photographic, literary, and archival, to try to tease that out. Because, of course, the challenge with emotional history is you really have no idea what people were actually feeling. You just have to infer over and over and over again. (laughs) And with each of those, I was always trying to use a variety of different kinds of sources so that I would have confidence in the end that, okay, yes, what I'm describing here might have approximated the emotions of some of those women working as medical professionals in the field. It's always still a guessing game. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by this idea of giving titles as a way of gaining authority and respect. Because when I was reading the book, it really reminds me of the dialogue I had with my mom about how nurses are not as high as doctors in a way, uh, because they take charge of different things. And usually nurses are easier to be trained than doctors. But then in your book, I see more about how women actually get power through being nurses and being midwives. And they were offered these titles that are so commonplace right now, like Hu Shi as nurse and then Zhu Chan Shi as midwife. They are so commonplace right now that we never think this way. But in that particular period, it gives them this kind of authority and respect. And that really fascinated me. And it really makes me think further about how we can do something more in the contemporary time to change this kind of set mindset about what nurse should be like and what doctors should be like in the realm of hospital. But all those things are so fascinating. And it's really related to our next question about this idea of new womanhood that you proposed in chapter four about authority in the halls of science. And I'm wondering, what was new womanhood through the analysis of wartime nurses? I love this question. And it does, as you say, it comes out most clearly in chapter four. Also, most saliently, I would say, in the stories of military nurses than civilian nurses, there was enough evidence in the sources to suggest that civilian nurses, at least some of them were jealous of the military nurses because the military nurses were having bigger adventures. (laughs) And, you know, you have to understand too, like the, the sort of, uh, you, you do as the daughter of a nurse, the, the kind of personality that's attracted to that kind of field uh, is someone who really wants to do dramatic things, right? And especially at that time when the nation was at war and all the news was just heartbreaking, much of your country is literally occupied by a foreign force that has demonstrated again and again its brutality toward your people. I tried my best to enter that mindset and see that the women petitioning to go into a military nursing position really wanted to prove their mettle. They wanted to demonstrate that they were powerful, they could be brave, they were not afraid of the bloodshed, they were not afraid of the turmoil, they were willing to accept the sacrifices personally that all of the the military nursing work required. And then all of the records of military nurses show again and again that they were interpreting this kind of military era, new womanhood, as one that required them to demonstrate that they were better than men. Not just the equivalent of men, but better than men in all of these attributes, courage, bravery, willing to accept sacrifice, hardworking, diligent, strong, 
emotionally strong, right? Willing to kind of grit your teeth and endure the terrible hardship of working under these conditions. And they really tried to rise to the challenge and they would back each other up. So they would, you know, encourage each other when they were getting tired or lagging behind or feeling like this load, you know, if I'm going to carry this litter with this wounded soldier on it, it's just too heavy. They'd be like encouraging one another to know, show that you have enough muscle (laughs) and that you can do this, right? Which then in kind of a subaltern studies inspired mirror reading, you can then infer, well, they were facing a lot of flack. You know, and I did see that in other sources too, like women who went to military leaders to say, we want to go serve as nurses for your soldiers on the field. And the male military leaders saying, no, 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 you can't possibly deal with the challenges. And they would, you know, the women are pushing back. And then in the sources I was finding, they were actually breaking through that barrier and kind of shaming the man into letting them go out to the field by saying it's like a non-nationalist attitude. That's an antediluvian, overly conservative attitude to say that just because we're women, we can't do this, right? So they were really accepting and desiring the opportunity to accept that hardship, right? These were exceptional women. And that's the one critique that I think could very much be levied against my book because a, a part of its argument is about this creation of a nationalism, not just the national community, but a sense of nationalism and national pride that goes against some of what other scholars have said. But of course, I'm looking at an exceptional group that's kind of already pre-selected into this category of people that really wanted to prove themselves in this very hard setting, right? There were for certainly for every young woman who took on the challenge of serving as a nurse or other medical professional in this time period, you could find at least one woman who said, no way, and I'm just going to stay at home or I'm going to do the quiet thing, right? And maybe those women who stayed at home and tried to be quiet still had their mindset much more identified with their locale, their village, their area, and not with the nation, as I'm arguing in this book with people on the move and meeting each other. But a huge part of the new womanhood is proving themselves, but also putting themselves willingly in this position where they did meet the nation. You know, they met soldiers from very, very far away. They had to figure out how to communicate with them through different dialects. They had to figure out how to respect them enough to offer them medical treatment right? So there's a lot about just the physical encounter and then the difficulties that that physical encounter produced because it was people who would never have met under other circumstances from different parts of China, from different social circles, from different social classes, from different occupations. And they were having to overcome all of those would-be barriers in order to do their basic work of saving each other's lives. I think Also, one thing I would like to say about what was new womanhood in the wartime is that it really awaits a lot of further scholarship because my book is just one tiny, tiny piece of the puzzle for us to really, really piece together everything about the story of Chinese women over the course of the 20th century. It's so much more than these eight years of war. Um, So I'm really, I await with great anticipation future scholarship on, on Chinese women in this period. That's so great. Our next question is actually related to this one in some sense. And also, we were been talking about how women perform in the first half of the 20th century and also especially the wartime. And then in your book, you talked about emotional labor that you brought up very early in the book. And then you discussed a lot in chapter two and later chapters as well. So I'm wondering, what are the different dimensions of this term emotional labor in your book? Yeah. So the first most important thing is that women were trained to perform emotional labor and expected to, and men were never expected to do that. It was, and this comes most explicitly from Zhou Meiyu, who's heading, of course, she she single-handedly created the training programs for the roving public health nurse in Dingxian prior to the war. And then for all of the military nurses working on behalf of the Chinese Red Cross during the war. And she assumed that male nurses would just be obstreperous and mean 
to wounded soldiers if they were resistant to medical care or, you know, if they were causing any kind of strife in the wards. So she trained the women to react to that with the basic non-reaction. And, you know, through my analysis, I, I rely on not just what I know of their emotional labor training from the documents from Jo Mei but also the gendered standard at the time that, you know, the, the soldier is put on the field in the period of World War II and in any nation in the world, but also in China, to protect the women and children. Right. That's that's the soldier's role, essentially, in the 1930s and 40s is to protect the women and children from the enemy. And so if this wounded soldier is then getting care from a woman, the person that he should be protecting, it kind of activated this sense of gender shame. If I refuse to return to the battlefield, then I am not performing my duty as a man. So the emotional labor that women had to perform was essentially embodying that female that who who should be protected and also being willing to give care even to the angry soldier even to the one who says he refuses to go back to the battlefield and indeed there's a lot of evidence in the sources that many military nurses convinced those soldiers to take up arms and return to the battlefield and then celebrated their ability to do this this is why i bring in ashil membe's necropolitics and say this is not a nursing that one can call the, the angelic, merciful, pacifist, only life-giving nurse. This is a life-giving nurse who simultaneously takes life by giving life. And the nurses themselves said, you know, when we save one soldier of our own, we kill one soldier of the enemy. They, you know, Xie Bingying most famously used that quote in, in her autobiography, but other nurses did this, that used that same Xie Bingying quote. Uh, I believe it did originate with, with Xie Bingying, the very famous uh, female soldier who published her memoirs from many multiple fights. But, you know, they seemed very cognizant that they were performing a kind of emotional labor for the ultimate goal of killing the enemy. And they were pretty well invested in that. You know, I also looked at civilian soldiers. A lot of their work, especially in Chongqing during the air raid season, was going out on the streets after an air raid to pick up the wounded and take them in for treatment, to pull the piece of shrapnel out of their thigh or staunch the bleeding when a brick or wood building collapsed on them or to treat the burn wounds that came when the Japanese were using incendiary bombs. So they too were seeing kind of like this is of course the classic thing about world war ii that the home front became the military front so there's especially since i was focusing on the civilian nurses in the wartime capital of Chongqing, there was very much a blending of military action there and the civilian nurses had a similar kind of response to that they were the besieged nation at war and they had to be willing to take on this self-sacrificial role but at the same time just logistically speaking, uh, the nursing schools did offer an opportunity. Not only the four years of being in school did you have your room and board covered. <laughs> you know, they were getting fed during those four years. And I have that part where I analyze the, the various offerings of all the different nursing schools in Chongqing. They were kind of trying to one-up each other and saying, you know, we'll give this to you, we'll give that. They're looking for good students. And they did get a lot more students through the war years by offering things like you can work for a government agency upon graduation and then we'll cover your tuition, but then free room and board for someone from a poor family where the family is struggling to feed everyone. That's kind of a, a no brainer for a young woman to enter into that field, right? So you did see a very diverse group of women in the the nursing schools that did have their full registers, including the uh, home province, it was not just Sichuanese, right? It was women from all over who had basically come in as refugees with their families. And those kinds of women, too, would have had a more powerful incentive, potentially, to participate in serving their country at war. Because if they're refugees, they've already seen perhaps their whole village destroyed or their city occupied, right? So they have a big emotional commitment to doing this work. 
that I had to just infer, right? I can't know exactly what their hearts were feeling, but I read so many memoirs of, of refugees living in Tolentine to kind of try to recreate this social world. I think it's safe to say that the refugee class you know, had a kind of staunch commitment to making sure that Chongqing itself also did not fall to the Japanese, that they could hold that wartime capital and stave off the Japanese army and not become a huge part of a Japanese empire. Yeah, I think there are so many layers of what you just talked about. And again, I'm so fascinated by that as well. In what you just said, you mentioned the term necropolitics, and also you mentioned Shibin's memoir about like when we are saving our soldiers, we're actually rebuilding the soldier to kill another enemy. All those kind of ideas, it's kind of unbelievable in this kind of peaceful time. Of course, it's not all peace right now, but when we are medical professionals, we're supposed to save anyone. It's not really about ourselves and others, but should be saving everyone. But at what time, it seems to be very different. So when I was reading all those chapters, I was thinking about all these dilemmas, like medical professionals faced at least two dilemmas during the war, saving ourselves versus saving others. And also the other part is something we have also touched upon in the earlier questions, which is to save lives and to exploit control over patients' bodies because they gain that authority to control the bodies of the patients. So how do medical professionals reconcile with these dilemmas? Yeah, I think in my analysis, I definitely saw people facing these tensions because the conditions, especially of military nursing, were really astonishing. And just to put some graphic detail on this, nurses routinely put Vaseline or some other kind of lubricant on the cuffs of their nursing outfits, their uniforms, and on the collar so that when the lice that were invariably infesting the soldiers' bodies tried to crawl onto the nurses' bodies, they would not be able to gain traction beyond the collar and cuff. And nurses did still die of typhus, like if they weren't actually able to have a tight enough cuff or if the Vaseline coverage wore off during the day of their work and they were just, you know, um, especially Yaoihua in those early days when there were so many physical wounds on the bodies of the soldiers, they routinely had extremely gangrenous wounds on the soldiers. By the time they got from the battlefield to the military field hospital with, you know, of course, the logistics of war, and this is sounding like a little bit like a digression, but, you know, the the fighting could move so quickly that it was hard for the military medical unit to, to move fast enough with the soldiers. So sometimes they had to travel a long distance to get to the field hospital. And by the time they got there, it was just super infected, especially during the hot summer months. So, you know, the conditions really forced a high level of personal sacrifice. Their nutrition was insufficient as well. Their working hours were absolutely insane. I have the really shocking story of Yao Aihua being so exhausted one time that she slept through an entire air raid. <laughs> and when she came out of it, her friends were like, we thought you were dead. How could you sleep through the, all of this crazy noise? She's like, I was just that exhausted, right? It seems unfathomable, <laughs> um, but it's just that degree of exhaustion. So it's astonishing to think that there were that many people who were willing to face that amount of self-sacrifice. But I think that when they did accept that degree of self-sacrifice, that kind of canceled out any feeling of guilt that they might have had over using their authority over the bodies of their patients, right? It sort of was like, well, I'm doing all of this hard work on behalf of you. <laughs> so you therefore should be willing to submit to my treatment, even if it hurts, even if it makes you feel awkward, even if you don't want to do it, even if you say that you're not going to go back to the battlefield and we're saying, yes, you've got to go back. So I think that these tensions were alive in their day-to-day -day work, but they effectively worked to, to cancel each other out. That kind of dynamic was a little less salient in the civilian nursing sphere, right, where they 
the civilian nurses were, as I just mentioned a little bit ago, dealing with air raid wounded. But in the non-air raid season in Chongqing, they were doing, you know, basic public health and making the, the hospitals and clinics function. And so they were just seeing the, the general public and that same kind of dynamic was was less salient in those spaces. But certainly in the, the military nursing field, it was quite prominent. Yeah. We were just talking about the book itself. Now let's jump out of the book a little bit, but it's also very much related to the book. And also you mentioned this in your very first question and also later on in other questions as well about archive. So I think this is always a very important thing for historians to do their own research. And you talked about how you met all those archives when you were still uh, in your master's degree or you were studying the language and all those things are so fascinating, I think. So what are your archives and did you encounter any other interesting stories or difficulties in finding them? And how do the archives lead to a good story to tell in the book? I was very, very blessed with this project to have an abundance of resources. So I began in a series of libraries and archives in the United States, just because of my locale and funding. Like then at that time I was piecing together small grants to do little research trips, but the ABMAC, the American Bureau for Medical Aid to China records were donated by Dr. John Watt to the Columbia Library in New York. Uh, since I was in New York, I went to the New York Academy of Medicine and to another collection of kind of missionary records where I was able to see the United Church of China archives. These are the entities, that, the philanthropic entities that donated a lot of money to support medical endeavors in China during the war. And so their archives included reports on how that money was being used and sometimes included photographs, which for me, I also started with that research because I felt like I've lived in a country that's never been subject to invasive warfare in my lifetime. I don't know how to access that kind of experience. So the photographic record and a lot of the really, really stunning photographs came from the ABMAC records at at Columbia University. The photographic record was really important for me to, to begin to get some sense of what it was like to live there, but also the Library of Congress um, in Washington, DC had amazing photographs as well. One of which is so iconic. I think it's the, the photograph of the corpses of people pulled out of one of the air raid shelters during one of the air raid, one of the most prolonged air raids in Chongqing at the so-called 18 steps, which that location, interestingly, was destroyed in Chongqing when I was living there during my dissertation research. So this also gave me a sense of immediacy was living in Chongqing, doing research there. And a lot of these iconic wartime sites were being destroyed to build the next new shopping mall or something. You know, they were known to be part of local history, but they were yielding to the pressures of development within this massive megalopolis. So the the desire to kind of preserve that history was giving me a, a sense of immediacy. But to get back to the point, I really was so appreciative of these photographs. And that one 18 steps one, I chose not to reproduce in my book among the 29 images because it has been heavily reproduced. And I think in a way that I, I just couldn't stomach because it shows the denuded corpses of this woman. Her whole lower half of her body is totally naked, babies. And I felt that I don't know these people and I don't want to defame their reputations by putting it in this publication. Not to say anything against people who have reproduced that image in their books, but I just didn't want to have images of dead people in that way that um, seemed disrespectful. Um, But I did include other iconic photographs from the Library of Congress. The one that I had to pay a lot for was the one of the the Japanese bomber over Chongqing, which I really, really wanted to show just how easy in a way it was to bomb the city of Chongqing because of its its location at the confluence of the the two rivers, the, the Jialing and its tributary. It was just so easy to see where you had to bomb to bomb that downtown area. That's why it was so, so heavily bombed. But then also within Chongqing, I I read 
the entirety of the records of the Chongqing Bureau of Public Health, which did have some big chunks missing. At basically every air raid season, you would see these angry memos coming from the National Health Administration. Your reports are overdue. Your reports are missing. And then they would write back in very scribbled calligraphy. We've got no time. We're dealing with all the air raid wounded. So which that, that in and of itself gives you a sense of just how inundated they were, right? And then you have reports from the mission hospitals at that time saying like, not only are all our beds filled, but we have patients in the corners, in the hallways, down, like we are just jam-packed. And we are all, all of the medical professionals are working overtime and we're still, we still can't staunch the wound that is being left by these air raids. So all of these things gave a kind of intimacy, honestly, I needed in order to make an argument about intimacy of that medical encounter, I needed to have a sense of how it smelled, how it felt, how it looked. So those were the, the Chongqing records, the Bureau of Public Health and the Bureau of Police as well, because the police were still involved with public health matters, even though their own Bureau of Weisung, their own public health bureau or, or department had been dissolved upon the creation of the Chongqing Bureau of Public Health. But the police were still very much involved in public health matters. And then in Sichuan, I consulted the records of the Sichuan Provincial Health Administration, which included not only the central agency in Chengdu, but all of the 139 other county health agencies that they established under the leadership of Chen Zixian. So all told, it was 27 different archives and libraries, lots of wartime newspapers, um, women's magazines and nurses' magazines and journals, oral histories, so many sources that I never, never had the problem of insufficient sources, despite those missing years and mostly missing months in the Chongqing Bureau of Public Health records. Partly and because I also went to Taiwan, because there was no rhyme or reason to which pieces of documentation the nationalists took with them to Taipei. <laughs> so I really think for this time period, for the nationalist period, you have to do research in both mainland China and Taiwan to get the full thing. Because so, for example, the, the eight-year retrospective report that the Chongqing Bureau of Public Health published, it was like 40 pages long. That was in Taipei, not in, in Chongqing, right? And some of the other things were only in Taiwan and not in the mainland. Um, so I really had to be, uh, I was fortunate to be in both locations. So with the, the Guo Shi Guan, the Academia Historica, and the records, they, um, I got a lot of the military history stuff from the Nationalist Party archives in Taipei as well. Wow. It's, again, so fascinating to hear all those archives. Actually, the most fascinating one or the most astonishing one, because I know so little about missionary in China before, but I interviewed uh, Dr. Joseph He for my first New Books Network interview, Developing Mission, Photography, Filmmaking, and American Missionaries in Modern China. I somehow started to know more about missionaries' involvement in wartime China. And this time, reading your book, there are so many interactions between missionary and all those medical professionals and how missionaries actually train medical professionals. And that's pretty special during the nationalist period in the first half of 20th century in China. So again, I just learned so much uh, from both of your books in this way. And then the other question, again, I think a very urgent question and also something that we are still living in right now, that is the pandemic. You are talking about all those different diseases in your book and also the medical professionals in your book. And we are now living this pandemic and you talk about new normal in the book. And in China, we also talk about new normal during the pandemic. So it seems to me that there are so many resonances between these two, I would say, conditions or the time that we, we are living through. So I'm wondering to what extent do you think these two things are comparable to each other? Yeah, that's a very profound question, given that we're still in this pandemic. And as we speak, people in Shanghai are still subject to a pretty severe lockdown. Both are times of exception, right? Both are times when what you have come to expect as normal just has to be jettisoned and the new normal intervenes. But part of that new normal, as I wrote about in the book, is, is a kind of growing numb to its exceptionality, right? Because in the end of the day, 
even during these exceptional times, the, the normal endures and the quotidian, just all of those basic needs still have to be met. The day-to-day interactions have to continue and people deal with the exceptional in part by accentuating the, the normal. So I've seen that dynamic play out during the pandemic, but also both of these exceptions put extraordinary demands of care, labor on women, right? So, and this is often the unsung, unrecognized part of exceptionality. You know, it's, of course, women play this role in normal times as well, but it just is that much harder in times of exceptionality. The number of hours that women in Chongqing devoted to standing in line in the market, dealing with, you know, fluctuating currencies, trying to make sure that the all the family members had food, make sure that everyone could get to an air raid shelter on time, giving birth inside air raid shelters, taking their newborn babies in there, nursing them through an air raid. It's just really extraordinary. So you know, the explicit examples I just gave about wartime should indicate that the other aspect to this comparison, I think, is that the war was so much harder than the pandemic. Not only because throughout the pandemic, we've been able to take advantage of technologies like Zoom and things to keep ourselves in the comfort of our home and doing the quote unquote normal, but also just because the severity of that war was exceptional. There were so many times when I was reading my documents, I just cried thinking about what people had had to live through. And, you know, even the people who quote unquote made it through, made it out, they had tremendous scars. So I, in light of that, I kind of understand why it has taken the field of Chinese history so long to get at the social history of the war, because not only did the Chinese people who lived through that have to then endure the civil war and then the Maoist era and all of its revolutions and upheavals of society, but they were really pretty eager to put that ex- that horrible experience behind themselves. And I can't fault them for it. I think I would have reacted in much the same way. Like that was awful. Let's not even talk about it anymore. Let's just celebrate that we made it through and kind of try to put a lid on that terrible experience because it was so traumatic. I think that does say to us as historians that we have some kind of responsibility, or at least I felt a kind of responsibility to the people I was writing about to do them justice, you know, which part of it was writing about how hard it was to to let the readers know that this was not just some walk in the park. This was like tremendously challenging time. It just shows exceptional strength on behalf of those people. I kind of felt that I owed them their due to put their stories on print. Yeah, I think this really leads to the last question about this particular book. In your conclusion, you ended your book with a series of thought-provoking questions. It's a whole paragraph of different questions throughout the historical periods. And then it reminds me of the question you asked us during the AS conference. So you asked the question, did women have revolutions? And also what you just said in the previous question really reminds me of this last two questions that you were asking in your book. Did women speak privately in diaries, letters, memoirs, or whispered conversations about this experience, or simply hold it all inside, as did Yao Aihua, who, upon finally encountering a journalist interested in her story after 65 years of silence, admitted, before, I never dared speak about a war of resistance, not even with my own children. It wasn't honorable. What happens to a woman's sense of self when she builds the very country that subsequently refutes her contributions? So again, I'm asking, do women have revolutions? Yeah, thank you for this question. It really drives to the heart of what I was trying to do with this book. And thank you also for reading those two questions out loud at the end. I still, to this day, whenever I reread that part, I get chills because that was so powerful to me, the degree to which these voices were silenced in subsequent decades. It's just so, this is why I felt 
a kind of obligation to get their stories out in print and why I was so committed to doing my book open access. And now I'm, I'm also currently entering into conversation with the press in China to do a Chinese translation of it, you know, because I think that yes, the period of exceptionality, the eight years of the war did open the gates wide open for women to enter these new professions, to gain a new sense of authority, sometimes to defy their parents or defy a marriage arrangement or, you know, gain access to a whole new kind of experience that just would not have been available in peacetime. And in that new experience, as I show in the book, they were having new relationships and meeting new people and making a difference. I do think that they made a difference. But on the other hand, I think that revolution was highly qualified because societies work very hard to right themselves after periods of exceptionalism. We know this from the stories of, you know, the famous World War II story of Rosie the Riveter and the American women who entered the armaments factories and, you know, put the rivets on the airplanes. When the men came home from war, They pushed those women right out of those nice union protected positions because they, quote unquote, belonged to the men. You know, it didn't matter that during those years of warfare, women proved that they could do that labor and that they could do it well. Once the men were back, the positions go back to the men. Right. And now, women, you go back into the home and be the, the lovely housewife. Right. So I feel like even though I ended my book in 1937, I am personally quite eager to see in subsequent research what we might see about the longer story of women, because obviously in there's a lot of excellent work by Christina Gilmartin, Gail Hershatter, Emily Honig, all these major gender historians that show us that during the communist era, women's liberation, women's rights, that the whole conversation, all the issues were very much centered to the background and the the class and the nation and the, the patriarchal state really took precedence. And of course, I'm also arguing in the book that the patriarchal state took precedence during the war as well. So yeah, it was, it was a revolution, but it was highly, highly qualified and really <laughs> just in kind of like little baby steps, right? Yeah. When I was reading your book, it really just resonates so much with Gil Hoshader's Gender of Memory, which is one of my favorites as well. And also my professor's, uh, Professor Sabine Fushduk's uh, discussion about the Japanese side of this whole story, which again, I think you choose uh, research really complements each other so well in this way. So now that we have discussed your intimate communities, I'm really interested in what you are doing after 2018, after you finish this book. So what's your next research project then? Yes. Well, I'm really in the very beginning stages of it because what really happened immediately after I got the book out was I had a baby (laughs) and then a pandemic. And so I've been, uh, my research progress has been somewhat slow, but I am now, next year I will be a fellow at the Shelby the Colin Davis Center in the Princeton History Department working on my second book project with the tentative title, Waste Cycles, A Social and Ecological History of Night Soil and Toilets in Modern China. So I'm trying to continue thinking about this ever-elusive hygienic modernity and how foreign disdain against Chinese practices comes in particularly with the the agricultural recycling of human waste in, in the form of the night soil fertilizer to push China into plumbing systems and flush toilets, along with, of course, the hygienic desire to stop transmission of disease microbes, which can be, of course, transmitted in an incompletely composted night soil as fertilizer. But I want to simultaneously look at the discursive formulation and how the presumptions of Chinese dirtiness added race as a category of suppression of Chinese agricultural practices that had, and as of the, you know, if we say 1950, it had been in practice for well over a millennium. I also want to marry this issue to what's called contrary farming, 
There are contrary farmers who are returning to the use of human excrement and urine because they are such valuable sources of the essential elements that plants need for growth. And we're dealing with a situation where there are soils impoverished of these of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium all over the world. <laughs> and it, we could, and especially in certain places, get to a point of food crisis, of inability to produce enough food. Um, and then, of course, chemical fertilizers pollute the soil. So it's thinking about the contrary farming push and the climate crisis and the notion that pooping and peeing into clean water and flushing it down, wasting the source, the resources that our excrement and urine offer to our plants and also dirtying another valuable resource doesn't actually make sense in this period of climate crisis. So maybe we should actually learn from human ancestors and do what Chinese farmers did for a millennium. So it's an experimental project and I'm really, really enjoying it. I like digging my toes into critical discard studies and environmental history and ecological history. So it's a very fun project. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because I think, again, when I first came to the United States, uh, there were so many differences when we think about how to pee and how to poo in China and the United States, like whether we squat or to sit <laughs> while doing <laughs> pooping, all this kind of thing. And also the farming you were talking about, it reminds me of my grandparents' home and then they still use this very traditional way of farming and again it's environmentally very friendly compared to what we are doing right now in the cities but at the same time as I grow up it wasn't a problem when I was young but when I grew up uh, when I'm so used to the city life and then I came back to the countryside and I need to encounter mosquitoes and flies and even mice (laughs) in the toilet it was quite a nightmare as well so Yeah, I think there are so many interesting things that when you are talking about it, it reminds me of. And I'm so looking forward to this project. It sounds so fascinating in both very personal ways and also in academic ways as well. So thank you so much for accepting this interview. And it was such a fascinating experience to talk through this whole book again. And again, it reminds me so many things uh, that are very intimate to me. So thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity to share my work with people and for your very insightful questions, Lin Shan. I really appreciate it. Thank you.